I'm really excited to announce that we're gonna have a five-part web-based series called From Stress to Success. These sessions are gonna have lots of discussion about these areas. And again, really practical things that when put together, create a great path towards not just surviving, but thriving in challenging times. The topics are managing burnout and emotional labor, thriving through long-term stress, protecting your sleep, creating spaces of vulnerability for yourself and your team, and finally, energy management. The conversation about mental health has never been more open than it is now, and we have an opportunity to go even further with that. I think back to my time as a therapist, and sometimes it felt like we had the secret combination that could really help people that really wasn't being broadcasted out to enough. So why don't we take this next step together? Please follow the link and I hope you'll join us. Have to make sure, right, that uh, people find our school accommodating, that we are also willing, right, uh, to constantly adapt so that we also forcefully embrace this idea, right, that we are not a German institution, but that we are an international institution. That was a clip from today's guest. Everyone, this is an awesome interview. Um, it's with someone that I really respect as a professional, as a leader, and also someone that I consider a friend. Uh, you know, it's interesting in the business world because sometimes, you know, you hear that term, it's like, it's not personal, it's business. I disagree with that. I think you can say it's personal and it's business because we spend so much of our time working, dedicated to our careers, building on these ideas, these things we're passionate about. How could it not be personal? And that personal part, uh, that really like heart-led part is what I like so much about today's guest. So this is a really cool interview um, with uh, someone that I think has so much to say about being a business leader, but also just being a person trying to do cool things in the world. But before we get to it, please rate, review, and subscribe. My name is Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Aram. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So for the uninitiated, for those who don't know, who are you and what do you do? So my name is Neil Stieglitz. I'm a professor of uh, strategy, strategy and business. And I'm also the uh, CEO and president of the Frankfurt School of Finance and Management. And that's a private business school here in Germany, Frankfurt, obviously. Okay. Um, what's the difference between being a president and CEO and being a dean? <laughs> I think that's a great question, right? A, a dean has operational responsibility for all the academic matters of a university or a department, right, uh, at a university. A president is the ultimate representative of a university, and the CEO has to call the shots when it comes to some of the business decisions, mm. right? And I think what's very special about Frankfurt School is that the role of the president and uh, of the CEO is actually combined in one person, right? Because, I mean, uh, that is something that is pr pretty unusual um, for higher education institutions. You also mentioned being a president of strategy or a, a professor of strategy. Do you still teach? I, I sometimes teach. I'm going to give a guest lecture tomorrow in our MBA cast because I really love teaching. Um, but it's very, very difficult to do both things, right? Because, I mean, if you want to do a good job at teaching, you really have to prepare 
Uh, you ha really have to make sure that you are um, up to standards. And I tried this during the first year of my presidency, but it was very, very difficult because I, wa I was in this meeting that ended at one o'clock, and then I had to go down to the classroom, start at 1.15, right, start teaching. And you were constantly were thinking about, okay, this could actually be time that you have to spend on some of the more pressing problems, right? So when I became president, I first of all made a conscious decision um, to stop uh, my research. I was, I mean, uh, very much into research. This is something that I really enjoyed. But back then, my intellectual mentor already told me, Niels, nobody's going to care about your next strategic management journal, right? That also told me very clearly, right? You have to shift your priorities. And that, unfortunately, right, also happened uh, to my teaching, right? So I'm giving lectures, I'm giving off-the-cuff talks that I really enjoy. I really enjoy being in the classroom, but you have to uh, have your priorities straight. I want to come back to the being a professor, uh, that shift from being in the classroom and doing research into being uh, leading an organization, because uh, that's such a cool part of your story. Let's focus on the school first. So you talked about being a private institution. Yeah. So for the listeners, what's the difference between a public and a private institution, and what would be the benefits of a private one? So a, a public institution, a public university, is essentially funded by taxpayers' money, mm -hmm. right? And uh, that's especially true. Uh, for Germany because the entire higher education landscape is heavily um, influenced and dominated uh, by public universities, right? In, in Germany, I mean, um, your university study is also um, tuition-free, right? You don't have to pay a tuition for it, but it's entirely funded uh, by the taxpayers. A private institution, on the other hand, right, has to make earn its keep, right? And we have to earn our keep through tuition, um, uh, through fees for executive education, for a consulting business, um, and so on. What's the difference? The difference is that we have to earn our keep every year in the marketplace, right? And with that we have to, I mean, really be agile, that we really have to focus on, okay, how can we uh, develop the best programs in the world? And I think that's not true for public um, universities, right? They can lay back a little bit more. Yeah, so you have to be like kind of sharpening your axe always, like kind of being at the cutting edge, creating something cool that's that's meeting the need now versus just kind of being a legacy entity. Absolutely, right? And we, are, I think we also have to focus, I mean, on the current needs, but also very much on the future needs, mm. right? Because if you think about, I mean, disruption, for example, in, in, in the marketplace, in the business space, right? Public institutions are very much shielded from this, right? At least in the medium term. We, on the other hand, right, have to start to ask questions. For example, how artificial intelligence is going to affect higher education right now because that is something that might undermine our entire business model. So there's a really, really important difference here between public and private universities. Why business school? Why would someone go to a business school specifically versus any other kind of school? Well, <laughs> that's a good question, right? I mean, I think uh, that was... Not necessarily my calling. I, I, I think that's a wrong uh, framing. Why? I mean, it's a little bit about my own personal history, basically, right? I mean, I started out, I mean, when I was a high school kid, I was really interested in history. I was really into politics. But I understood that in order to understand politics, you really have to understand uh, economics. So I bought a book, a textbook on economics, and I opened it, and it was all mathematics. And I thought, oh, shit, you're never going to read this right, on your own, you probably have to study this. So I started out studying um, uh, economics and uh, political science side by side, and then at one point I dropped the political science part. Economics had such a huge impact on politics, on society, and I think I wanted to understand this. 
So why then at business school, right? Because at one point I really got interested in this big topic. That was actually my research question when I was still on the faculty. Why doesn't competition die out? Right? Karl Marx back in the 90s, uh, 19th century, sorry, said right, that capitalism is going to get rid of itself because I mean all the markets are going to get monopolized. Right? You're seeing the same discussion with big tech nowadays. But that never happened, right? Because I mean these big incumbent companies like Radio Corporation of America or Eastman Kodak, they were blown out of the water uh, by startup companies or by other companies coming out from under industries. And I found that extremely fascinating. I think it's a really fascinating question. Uh, and that is what I wanted to I mean, understand better. And this is, I mean, how I ended up uh, essentially in business, in business administration at a business school. You know, it's, a, it's so interesting coming from North America because, you know, North, most North American schools, you're paying for everything no matter yeah. what. I love so much that people have the option here to um, have a, a publicly funded education. But then when there's an option like this school, so when someone could go to a public institution, why would they choose to come here instead? I think part of the reason or a major part of the reason is that the success of our graduates is our success, right? I mean, that is what the school essentially is all about. We want to educate them in the way that they are going to later on succeed in their career, whatever that career is going to be, right? Whether that is in business, whether this is in government, whether this is in NGOs, whatever, right? Because if they are successful, they're, first of all, they're going to talk about us, right? And say, hey, that was such a great experience, right? This really opened up doors for me. Uh, but second, I mean, this is also what we are seeing, right? Our graduates, our alumni are very active, uh, contributing uh, to the school, right? They are doing lectures with us. They are mentoring our students. They are opening doors in the companies that they're working for, right? So by the end of the day, Frankfurt School is a community. It's a vibrant international community. And that's not what you find uh, at a public university here. Going further into this idea, you know, that idea that the concept of like, if you have to pay for something, you're a bit more invested in it versus if you get something for free, maybe you take it a bit for granted. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I don't want to uh, generalize that about people's school experience, but I think if like, if I had had the option to go to school for free, because when I finished school, I had a mountain of student loan debt and that really in North America, that's, that's, that's what you're going to be looking at. If I had the option to go for free versus paying for something, if I paid for something, I probably would have taken it quite serious right off the hop. I would have been very a very picky shopper about where I'm going to go, and I would have high expectations of my experience. When I was walking through the campus today, when you're taking Monica and I through the tour, I, like our minds were blown. This is a very beautiful campus, very student focused. Everything from like having. Uh, these like soundproof rooms so that you could do uh, these meetings and having these like, you know, these like uh, special little places where you can do phone calls, still these beautiful flex spaces. It really has the sense of a place where you're like, this is built for you so that you could be successful here. I don't know if, I mean, I certainly didn't experience that at, at university and, uh, and I paid for university, but I didn't experience that back home. Well, thank you for noticing. I think that's the... Uh... That's really, really important, right? Uh, it's also this, this caring part and this caring about excellence part, right? And I think this is a, this is a constant struggle. I mean, you're mentioning the campus, right? I mean, uh, this is something that we have to actively work on, that it stays student-friendly, that we are also keeping that quality, right, each and every day, right? It's a, so that's, that's really important. Well, in so much of the through line of what we've talked about, and you voiced it, 
but also like I noticed it a lot. There's like a, I haven't had any experience in, in uh, public, uh, public institutions in, in Europe. This is, you know, my experience is solely in North America and then this school here. But the idea of caring is really, um, it's a through line here. So when you and I have done uh, our professional work together, and then being here on camera, you know, kind of getting ready for the interview, there's a real intentionality about everything and like a real passion about what you do. And I don't know if I've ever really experienced that in a, in a post-secondary uh, setting like this. It's, it's like really inspiring to be here. Okay, thanks. I mean, we're trying very hard. So if you're thinking about like an, from an experiential point of view, you can say things like, oh, caring is important here. But you as a leader and as, a, as an organization, how do you instill that in the experience? Like you can want it to be, but how like you you can want everyone to act with caring so that students have this incredible experience. But how do you actually make it so that it's such a part of the DNA of this organization? I think a, a big chunk of that is uh, communication, right? Um, that you have to say the same things again and again and again, even if you are tired of it, right? I think this was also a big learning for me. It's something that I heavily underestimated at the beginning uh, of my, my term, right? I thought, okay, if I had said something once, right, people are going to get bored if they hear it two or three times. But you have to repeat things again and again to make the point. I think that's the first thing. The second uh, thing is that you have to also lead by example, right? I think that's also, you have to be a good role model uh, for things. So you also have to have this attention of detail to your own work. Right, uh, this focus, and I think that's important. And third, I mean, uh, we just mentioned this this morning. I think it's also about, I mean, how you onboard um, your um, your staff, your, how you onboard your team members. Right, that we spend some time thinking about, okay, how can we get across what Frankfurt School is all about, right, uh, in, in a formal way, but also in an informal way. Like, for example, running a reception uh, for all the new employees that we have here, so that they get exposed um, to, well, how how we work and how we roll. When we've been walking through the school, we really talked about the evolution and like how it has truly, I know evolution is like such a term that's thrown around in, in all mm -hmm. businesses, but this really has evolved and grown quite a bit. Can you tell us, just give us a brief overview of the history, but really specifically focusing on the past few years and how, how things have developed? Absolutely. I mean, we, we sometimes come across as a very young uh, institution, but we were actually founded back in the 1950s, uh, back then as a banking academy. And the whole point was, Right, that back then banking was very non-academic, so you wanted to train people on the job as they progressed uh, in their career. And we offered the courses for exactly such a career path. Right, um, we did this extremely successfully all the way up to uh, the financial crisis by the end of the day. Right, during the financial crisis, it became very, very clear that there's a massive strategy shift also in the financial industry that acad uh, academic uh, reputation. Academic education is becoming more important. Also, that the financial industry is becoming less dependent um, on having many, many jobs, for example. Right? And then we st started to shift gears. Um, so in the 90s, we already founded a very small academic institution just focusing on banking. And then after the financial crisis, we really said, okay, right, given some of these developments in our business environment, if we want to survive in the long term, we have to become a full-blown business school. Right? that not just offers finance, but also management, and that really uh, on a top level. And that has been our journey so far, right? So, and part of that journey was, I mean, the new campus here in the middle of Frankfurt. Uh, we have a so-called triple crown accredited uh, institution. 
that means that we have all the relevant international uh, accreditation for business schools, ASVSB, ICWIS, uh, and AMBA. That's also kind of like a sign of our excellence. Um, hiring a lot of faculty during these years, and we have really grown quite a bit. And you have uh, quite a large international body as well, right? Yes. I mean, in our master's programs, right, 50% of our uh, students come from abroad. In the undergraduate level, it's uh, smaller, it's around 10%. But that's because of uh, some regulation here in Germany that in the past restricted our ability uh, to attract international students. Uh, but that has now changed, and we are also going to, I mean, see more international students also um, in our undergrad form. And I think that's part of the business school, right? That you have, I mean, folks from all over the world, that you have this diversity, and you celebrate this diversity, and also this understanding that business should know no border. And I think that insight is truly important nowadays, if you look around yourself. Let's shift over to you. So you're, you were not setting out to be the president and CEO no. of the school. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> I, I never planned a management uh, career, basically, uh. right? So, I mean, back when I was studying, I wanted to become a journalist. So I did some TV shows and TV documentaries, for example, on hardcore in the 1990s in Germany and some other things. Uh, but then I, I started to become more attracted to uh, the business side of things. So I also, I mean, dabbled with uh, right, being a business consultant, being an uh, assistant to a, a general manager in a media company. But then I got this, this possibility to pursue a PhD, right? And I thought, okay, that's really nice because it's essentially an extension of your university study. And back then my professor told me, I think that was the first day on the job, never think about joining an academic uh, career, right? It's, it's way too competitive, very, very difficult to land a job. Do your PhD for three years, right? And then you go back to industry. Problem was that during those three years, the industry that I was interested in, that was a media industry, was rapidly <laughs> declining because of, of the internet and right advertisement shifting over to, to Google. And at the same time, I really started to enjoy the research part and really enjoyed the teaching part. And I thought, damn, that's, that could be a very nice career for you, right? So I was really focused on this. And even just a year before I became president, I said to my students, I mean, uh, being a professor is the best job that you can have because you have all the freedom, you have all the possibilities, and there are all these different paths that you can uh, take. And I, I think, for example, I mean, teaching, interacting with young people, it's, it's so rewarding, right? And also it's so rewarding um, to see how they are going to develop later on, right? So I take a lot of pleasure out of meeting uh, some of my former students and observing how they have developed and what kind of insight they gain from my classes. And that's truly rewarding. Let's take a step back. Uh, where'd you grow up? Oh, I grew up in a very small village uh, all the way up in the north uh, in Germany, in Schleswig-Holstein, that's north of Hamburg. So very small town, right, with farms and a beach, um, but not much else. And I always wanted to live uh, in a much, much larger city, right? Yeah, I wanted so to get out. What did you think you were gonna do when you were a kid? Uh, actually, I mean, there is actually, I mean, this, um, uh, this little booklet from a primary school where I said, I think it was third or fourth grade, I said, I want to be a professor in chemistry <laughs> no back then. Yeah, exactly. It, it is literally like this. It is like this. I wanted to be a professor. Yes. Uh -huh. Right. I think I was always drawn to this idea that you get paid for thinking. Yeah. I think that is something that I always found uh, extremely attractive and that you also 
uh, get, to, get to interact, I mean, uh, with all these interesting people that you have this global community, right? And, um, and that you're doing creative stuff. I think this is, I mean, what already, I mean, was a draw from me in, in primary school. As you can see, I mentioned this, right? Uh, then it started to shift it a little bit, right? I tried out various things. Uh, I, but I always came back to this idea that I'm actually attracted to doing academic things. Oh, well, that's amazing, man. So, because also part of your story is that you came up in subculture. You came up in skateboarding. You came up in music. So how did, how did that find you coming from such a small town and pre-internet? I think, I mean, that was when I got exposed to the much wider world, right? So when I was all the way up to 10th grade, I was really a role-playing geek. Right, so the, I was right. I was playing chess. I was doing role playing on Friday and Saturday. Like Dungeons and Dragons. Yes, yes. So I was uh, the nerd, and then I spent a year in the United States, and uh, this is where I got. I mean, I saw all these cool skateboard kits and all the cool T-shirts, and I mean, since I was an, an unknown person in that context, I thought, okay, this is an opportunity to start to live a different side of, of what has always been in me, right? Um, so I, I bought a skateboard. I, I started to, to skate. I was never very good at it, I have to say. Uh, but I got drawn into this entire subculture, right? So I bought the Thrasher magazine. I found out about all this music that I've never heard about before, right? All these cool t-shirts. And that is what first attracted me to this, right? And this is also where I, come, I came across, I mean, punk rock, hardcore, uh, and these things. I mean, back when I was a kid, Right, I mean, uh, you had this impression punk rock is all for the people, right? That uh, tear down, I mean, downtown places. I mean, there were all these big riots in Hanover here in Germany, um, and and so on. You had this this very strange perspective on what what punk rock is, right? That is completely destructive, right? That it's nihilism, it's live fast, die young. And then I realized, no, no, there's actually a different side to this, right? It's more about rebellion, it's more about being constructive, trying to be the person that you actually would like to, to be, right? And, and that is something that it, uh, I, I found very attractive. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more when I first started hearing about like punk and, well, punk, you know, I didn't know there's a thing called hardcore. When I first started hearing about it as a very, very young kid, I thought it was a, like a dangerous thing, like a bad thing. Yeah. And, and when I was more exposed to it through skateboarding, and the ideas of creativity, uh, the liberty to think in different ways, uh, even like the skateboard graphics and how like they could kind of juxtapose death and life together. You know, you'd have all these skulls, but then you'd be out skateboarding and creating all these things and doing these things. The whole thing just catapulted me into a, a totally different way of, of thinking. And it's funny that it's kind of uh, encapsulated or it's kind of coded in all of this seeming negativity, but when you just get a little bit deeper, it's actually like a very life-affirming. Absolutely. Kind of Absolutely. So you were there. You told me something that I didn't know about you uh, when we were chatting. Uh, so you were in the Dakotas. You were in South Dakota, yes, was it? South Dakota. So, yeah. But you'd already come from uh, kind of a, quite a small town, and then you went to the, the, the Dakotas. So it was similar but different. Well, it was a step up, I have to say, <laughs> right? Because, I mean, I come a village, uh, 800, 800 people. Right, and there I think they had a population of around twelve thousand people. So that was already a step up for me, right? And I remember, I mean, when I got the news, I mean, when you have these dreams, I mean, you go to uh, to the United States for a year, right? You have all these ideas going to California, right, uh, Florida, I don't know, right? So I remember, I mean, how disappointed I was. But then when I arrived there, 
I, I really enjoyed it. It was a great, great time. It was kind of like a lottery system. You didn't know where yeah, you were going to go. Yes. And then they told you South Dakota yeah, and you exactly. were disappointed. Yes. Yeah, initially, right? Because, I mean, you have no conception um, of, of the Midwest if you are in Europe, basically, right? Because, I mean, your perspective on the United States is, is driven by Hollywood, right? And, uh, yes, you know about, I mean, uh, the Midwest, but that's because of the cowboy movies. But that's about it, right? Um, but I arrived here, and I think this is, I mean, it was, I mean, for me, a life-changing uh, year, right? Because it opened my mind, it opened my mind to this understanding how cultures can be very, very different, right? Um, I think it also helped me to understand, I mean, how German I am in certain aspects, right? And for me, I mean, one of the big things that I learned there uh, was tolerance, right? And at the same time, I mean, going back to this, I mean, uh, it really also helped me to develop uh, an identity. I mean, it was a much larger city, uh, <laughs> at least compared to where I grew up. Right? And they did have these different subcultures. Right? They had these skateboard kids. They had these hardcore kids um, and so on. Of course, they also had the jocks and they also had the role-playing nerds. But for me, this was an entirely different world that I really, I mean, started to, I mean, um, really, really enjoy. And then at the end of my stay, I got to spend more than two months in California because my aunt was staying in North Hollywood at that point. So I also got to hang out in, in California, and that was obviously amazing. What were some of the bands you saw? Uh, I mean, I, I saw Instead. That was my first hardcore show. I saw Nirvana I'm opening up for a hole in Dinosaur Jr. at the Palladium um, in, in Los Angeles, so be, way before they became big. I mean, uh, I went to the Risky and, and some of the other places. So it was a really, really great time, right? Especially uh, after I got exposed to all this music before, right? And that was very influential, very influential this time. I'm very excited you saw Nirvana and Holden Dinosaur Jr., but I'm more excited you saw instead. That's really cool. <laughs> Shout out to Stephen Rich. I love you guys. Um, okay, so you are this kid who had aspirations to be a professor ever since you were quite young. Uh, then you kind of got into the idea of journalism. Eventually, you find your path into academia. And what's interesting is you start with this very small experience, like very, very little town, role-playing nerd, all of those kinds of things. Your words, not mine. Get into a bigger subculture. But when you get into academia, you join another subculture because academia is a very distinct subculture, just like punk and hardcore is. So now you kind of have these two cultures walking side by side. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there's a lot of wisdom to this. I've never thought about this in that way, right? But it's true. I mean, academia or management scholars, I mean, it's also they also have their codes, they have their gatherings, right? They have their networks, they have their rumors, they have their chit chat uh, and so on. That is something that I really, really enjoyed, right? That was also, I mean, a big part, I mean, that you do have this, this global community, right? A global of community of uh, people that you see again and again, that you interact with, that you develop ideas with, right? And that is something that I, up to this day, by the end of the day, really, really enjoy, right? So I got to throw out a, a bit of a challenging question. Both subcultures share something, I believe share something in common, which would be uh, a distrust of authority. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. So for punk and hardcore, it would be distrust of like corporations yep. or the police or, or any uh, or the government, anything yep. that would be a, a, a controlling uh, body. Uh, for academia, it would be bosses, it would be, it would be the, the governance of a university or of, or of a college or any of these things. It would be the, the uh, people who are outside of the classroom making the business decisions. Absolutely. So 
you were on one side of the fence at one point. Did you hold those opinions when you were on that side of the fence? I, th I think I always had a um, slightly different view on, on, on some of these uh, discussions, right? So first of all, authority for me only resides in uh, public institutions, right? In government institutions, right? So this is something that intellectually I really grew up with. And I remember, I mean, um, um, that after the financial crisis, I was in this one uh, public university in, in Denmark, and I, I a remembered a friend coming up to me, right, just after the Lehman bankruptcy, that he's so so happy to be at a public university because I mean, right, you are going to have this job for life, and I always thought mm, I, I was not opposed to uh, having a lot of uncertainty. Um, but then I read an uh, article in the Economist, right, and that talked a little bit about the state of business schools, um, how business schools function and why they, and how they are adapting um, to the ramifications of the financial crisis. And the big punchline of this was that business schools tend to be extremely conservative institutions, very uh, opposed to innovation, for example. And, uh, and the, the big punchline was, I mean, that business schools should be run more like a business and less like a school. And back when I said, hey, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I like this. Because that's also what I'm seeing at public institutions, right? Being run as a school, thereby very conservative uh, and so on. And that always had a lot of appeal to me. So when I started to interact with Frankfurt School, right, with the former president here, Udo Steffens, right, my sense was, okay, this is actually a place that is being run like a business and not like a school. And this is something that I really liked. And it also uh, drew me to Frankfurt School. So you came in as a professor for six years, was it? I was here six years. I joined uh, Frankfurt School on the faculty in 2012, and I became uh, president in 2018. So during this time, the school's growing, it's transforming, it's becoming a different beast than Absolutely. it was. Absolutely, yes. And you had no intentions or even thought of being the president? No. no. So how did that opportunity open up for you? So, I mean, I was asked to, to join the project team for the new uh, campus project here. And obviously, I mean, uh, I thought, okay, that's a very nice opportunity, right? When do you have uh, the opportunity to be able to help design uh, such a new building, right? That also 30 years down the road, you can look at and say, okay, I've been part of that story, right? So this is something that appealed to me. And this is, I think, why, I mean, folks got, I mean, interested, I mean, some of my perspective, things that I said there. I mean, the former president uh, announced that he's going to retire. He's been in this job for 25 years, right? For a very long time, very influential for the school. And then they approached me and I thought, oh, right? I, no. <laughs> so it was a hard no right off the bat. Did you actually say no? Uh, at the beginning, I said no, right? Because, I mean, this was completely outside of everything that so far I had thought about. But then I started to realize, right, that, I mean, A, this is a, such a nice opportunity to be able to help, right, um, guide such a school, right? To be part of a much, much larger story that goes beyond your research, that goes beyond what you do there. And second, I mean, I've been, back then I've been on the faculty for being a professor for more than 10 years, right? And even longer if you also, I mean, think about the PhD. And at one point it also started to get a little bit boring. I remember when I got a, an acceptance letter uh, for some of the top journals, I was a lot less excited than I was before, right? Back in the days, I mean, the beginning, when you got a, one of your research pieces accepted, I was really, I mean, 
I mean, thought, okay, I'm a master of the universe, right, for the next three to six months, right? <laughs> like, wow, right? Whereas a Nobel Prize, right? And then, right, and you've done this a couple of times, and then you thought, okay, right, check another acceptance, another journal paper out there, right? So, a job well done. And I thought, okay, you know, how is this, this opportunity to really shift your career? So I was started to get attracted to this. And I remember, I mean, I was visiting a very good friend. I mean, that was a, like a conference in, in Berlin and we had dinner. And he said, okay, you don't have anything to lose, right? If you suck or you feel, I mean, that you don't like the job, you can always step down. You can always go back to faculty, right? And uh, no harm done. Uh, as long as you realize this uh, soon enough, right? Before breaking the schools. And I thought, that's right. That's right. Let's try this out. All right. All right, man. I'm going to ask you a tough question. I laugh though because I've experienced this myself. Uh, you've gone. You went from something you loved doing, and your passion for teaching and really helping people on their journey and, and and becoming successful is totally evident. Like you light up when you talk about it, and even when you and I are just chatting one to one, when you talk about your time as a professor, you always totally light up. Then you switch into a leadership role and not just a leadership role, the leadership role. So you become the person at the end of the day who's running, who's uh, overseeing the whole organization. As you know, not everyone who's good at one thing is going to be good at the next thing that's, a, that's a attached to it. And as an example, um, uh, as I've mentioned on the show many times, and as you know, my background is, is being a therapist. And one of the things that I disliked the most about working as a therapist was working in the not-for-profit system because I found that people who are fantastic therapists were terrible leaders. And being good at one thing doesn't make you good at leading the people who would do those things. So for you, the shift from being a professor to the president, what was that like for you uh, personally and professionally? <laughs> I mean, it was a, a massive uh, changed my entire life uh, style, right? Everything basically changed from more or less one day to, to the next. But I think I was very conscious uh, about this step because exactly what you just talked about, I mean, was something that I also talked about in my MBA teaching, for example, right? Um, so I think I had the theoretical understanding um, of some of these other challenges. And I also went in there with this very clear idea that this is for you a journey, especially a learning journey, right? So I constantly also try to, I mean, seek out feedback, understand, okay, how did you actually act in this particular situation? What went well, what did not uh, go so well, right? I think this is also some of the feedbacks that I'm getting um, from, from the supervisory board, right? That I, uh, that they are struck by the fact how reflective I am about uh, some of these aspects. And I also went in there with this very clear idea that at the, especially at the beginning, you are going to uh, make mistakes, right? And that it's all about, I mean, rectifying and then learning from these mistakes. But uh, having said all this, right, what really helped me was truly this understanding, right? If I don't like it or if I suck at it, I can always go back. And I think that's a huge difference between a career in the corporate world and a career um, in academia, right? In the corporate world, right, if you move up, you cannot step down again. Well, it's very, very difficult. And that helped me a lot, right? But I think you need to have this really clear understanding, right, whenever you, uh, you, you change, right, that what is going to make you successful or even happy in the next step is not going to 
a piece of stuff that made you happy before or successful. Yeah. Um, do you mind if I share a little bit of my, my yes, story? Yes, of course. Uh, when I was a therapist, I, and especially because I came from punk and hardcore and skateboarding, I had this very, really critical view of leadership. And like, uh, I had what I, at the time, I didn't realize were opinions. I had at the time what I thought were the facts, which is like, I know better than you. <laughs> like, I'd always look at my bosses and be like, why are they doing it like this? They should do it like that. Uh, until I became a leader for the first time and I stunk. I was terrible at it. My first uh, leadership role was a mid-level management role. And I did the classic things that you do. You try and be everybody's buddy. You try and be the cool, the cool boss. And all the things I did were literally every wrong thing that you could possibly do. And uh, I hated it. I was, I was in that position for less than two years, couldn't handle it. I thought it just, it changed my, it changed the way that I think about leadership. It gave me a lot more humility uh, because it was truly some, the, probably the first thing I really failed at in my life. And I had a ton of humility about it, but also a lot of insight that being a leader is really hard. And you're learning but you're learning on a public platform where every single mistake can be microanalyzed and judged by all of the people that you're learning in front of. I, I agree, right? And also, I, what I also found, I mean, really, really difficult um, was, I mean, I, I also came to this job with this clear idea that if you're a leader, right, it's, it's not a popularity contest because you will make unpopular decisions. That's by the end of the day what you get paid for. Right? I mean, there are all these ideas also in, uh, in, in our research on pr the problem-solving hierarchy, right? and on and on and on. So the, I had this very clear idea that when you go in there, you cannot be the body of everyone. There are going to be people who will not like you, who are not going to appreciate the decisions uh, that you're making, for better or for worse. Um, and that was also my big fear, right, coming into this. Maybe I just want to be popular, right? Because we caught, talked about the academic community before, and there... I mean, what I really enjoyed, that, that I was actually suddenly a popular kid in that particular subculture, not, not just in the sidelines, but right in the middle of this. And this is something that I really enjoyed. And I always had this nagging doubt, right? maybe I just want to be popular, right? And if, if, if that's your perspective, if you want to be popular, I think you will find it very difficult uh, to be a good leader. It's, well, and I think everyone, Everyone knows you come up with that idea. It's like, oh, you can't be everyone's friend. And as you're saying, it's like the research would tell you this, but there's that human desire to be liked Absolutely. by people. And when you have to come in and make a tough decision, if you have to do simple as something as even as simple as changing schedules, yes, like it's a huge, huge thing. <laughs> yes, yes. So starting from the simplest uh, point of view, you said it was like, it really changed your life. How did you as a person and as a family person, as a professional, and just as like a person in the world, how did you cope with that change of lifestyle and that change of responsibility and focus? I think, I mean, first, family was really important for me, mm -hmm. right? So also what I also said was that I, when I end my tenure, whenever that might be, I still want to have a family. So I always try to also have a focus uh, on my family there, right? Spending less time right, on your hobby, sp spending less time on other subcultures, really spending time uh, with, with the family. I think that was uh, very useful for, uh, for me. Second, really, I mean, embracing the challenge. I mean, going in there without any regrets, right, without any 
looking back and really embracing this opportunity. And third, I mean, what was also a strong motivator for me was essentially enjoying the ride. I think, right, one of the things that I said back then also to some of my friends and also to some of the students, right, I think for me what makes life interesting is a variance, the change, right, doing different things. Because if I think back, right, when was the time that I felt most alive? And that was always a time when there was change in my life, right? A new job, uh, a new town, a new kid, a new house, a new career, right? And that is what I was looking out for. So I was really looking out for this excitement, also the, also the uncertainty, the anxiety. But I think that is something that um, really makes us livable. So going in there with this really, really embracing the challenge, right? That's, I think, how I was able to cope uh, with this. And the first year in my presidency was really, really tough. I mean, we moved into a new campus. Uh, uh, we made a, a fairly substantial financial loss in my first year of the presidency. Uh, and I had to make some, some very tough calls. Um, so, right, so after a year I realized, okay, right, you do enjoy this and you are actually also pretty good at it. Right? What's something that you learned about yourself through taking on this role that you didn't know before and that you really have come to like about yourself? That I'm willing to, that I do have the guts to make tough decisions, right? I remember, I mean, there was also a discussion, I mean, when I was at university, I remember talking to some friends back then, right? And I said, I can never be a manager because I can't even decide on what kind of pizza I want to eat. Right? <laughs> so, right? Which and is that, a tough decision. Yeah, yes. It, it, well, <laughs> right? And that actually stuck with me, right? So, so I think that was quite important, right? To go in there, uh, being reflective about this, right? And I also remember, I mean, I was sitting in the subway, uh, and that was, I mean, I was very, I mean, I was writing this process, and it was, it was very close to s signing off on the deal to become the president. And I read an article, um, I think it was in the German Harvard Business Review, written by Jeffrey Pfeffer. And he said, okay, everything that you learn about leadership is wrong, right? You don't have to be, build trust, right? You have to cheat people, right? You have to be an asshole, and on and on and on. And I went through this article, and I thought, oh, shit, right? <laughs> if that's really true, if, if that's what it takes to be a successful business person, I don't want to go there, right? But I think he's actually wrong, and I think there are also models and also uh, empirical insights that you uh, can... Uh, can point to. I think you can be uh, a good person, a person with a lot of integrity, uh, but at the same time also be a, a good leader. I don't believe you have to be an asshole at all. I think it's lazy thinking. I think, I, I, I know you and I have talked about this. Uh, the way I frame it up is authentic, authenticity versus preference. And uh, a lot of my work with people, they often talk about authenticity as if it's this like gold standard. Oh, I just want to be authentic. and the way that I encourage people to think about it in the business world is that authenticity and preference should be both considered. And what I think people are talking about when they say authenticity is preference. It's like, oh, I just want to be who I am. Well, who I am is actually, that's how you prefer to be. I prefer to be all sorts of ways. I prefer to wear jeans and a t-shirt. I prefer to, when I'm at home, I'm wearing sweatpants. Um, but if I'm going to go to the opera with, with Monica, I am going to wear like a suit or something very, very nice. And I don't prefer to do that. It's that being in that space, that's the appropriate, uh, appropriate attire. And preference, there's nothing wrong with preference, but preference feels good all the time, but it's not always the right thing to do. 
where I bring in the idea of authenticity. Authenticity is usually the right thing to do, but it doesn't always feel good. And what I mean by that is that I think that in a business setting and in a life setting, people can become authentic at almost anything. The only thing you can't become authentic at is something that crosses an ethical or moral boundary. Right. Yes, I agree. So you can't be authentic with that. But there are ways of being, leading, speaking, interacting with people, doing work, doing process that once you once you learn about it initially, it's going to feel alien to you because it's new. And because it's new, it might uh, uh, be contrary to how you usually do things. So not only is it new, it actually feels bad. It feels weird. It feels like a block. It's the less quick way of doing things. Right. But the more you do it, the more accustomed you get to it, you kind of figure out your own shortcuts about it, you make it your own, then you can do it authentically because it's something that was different from you that you've now made your own, you've made part of your process. You still probably would prefer to do it another way. That's why preference, when people talk about preference, I say, hey, preference is fine, but becoming authentic at something requires work and it can enable you. So when we think about this idea of being an asshole at, uh, in spaces, it's a, it takes a lot more skill to have a difficult conversation in a, in a uh, non-asshole way, where you're not taking shortcuts, where you're having a tar- hard conversation, you're making the tough decisions, and you're doing it with a lot of integrity, calmness, keeping pace with someone. You could do the exact same thing in 30 seconds by being an asshole. To me, that's preference, where authenticity is the, the path where it takes a lot more skill, practice, patience, and time. No, I agree. I think this is also reminds me um, of, of some of the concepts that were, I was struggling with. I mean, uh, when I also became a leader, I mean, um, so there was a Stanford professor, Jim March, and he made the distinction between a logic of consequences when it comes to all behavior and a logic of appropriateness. Mm-hmm. Right. And I was when I was an academic, I was always struggling with this. I mean, I'm an economist, but as economists, you're completely trained by this logic of consequences, right? That in a given situation, you think about okay, what are the rewards, right? Uh, and given those reward structures, what's now the best way forward? But Jim Marsh always said there's kind of like a second way of how we behave and how we also, I mean, uh, make choices. And that's the logic of appropriateness, right? That we ask ourselves, okay, what kind of situation uh, is this? And what would be, given the person that I am, given my identity, what would be an appropriate response by this? And that's a completely different logic. And I think, a lot of what we do as a leader, especially when it comes to leading a team, right? When it comes to the business decisions, it's all about the logic of consequences. But I think when it comes to leadership, it's a lot about finding out, okay, what is actually appropriate here, right? And then leading by example, showing what is actually appropriate. So this is something that as an academic never really resonated with me. I remember doing kind of like a book chapter with a friend on the logic of appropriateness, but it never really resonated. Only started to resonate when I became a leader. This is where I started to really think about this. And going back to what you just said, right? The logic of consequences is comparatively easy. It doesn't take a lot of effort, right? Well, the logic of appropriateness requires a lot of effort. It requires a lot of consistency in your behavior, uh, being conscious about this being able to embrace ambiguity because sometimes the situation that you find yourself in is not necessarily as clear-cut, right? Uh, so this is something that I'm, I'm uh, thinking a lot about. I, I want to add on to the logic of appropriateness. Uh, are you familiar with the concept of emotional labor? Yes. Okay. I'm going to speak about it a little bit just, just for yeah. the audience to get it. Um, so emotional labor being uh, if something provocative happens, whether it could be something provocative in a positive way or a negative way. So if something, if someone 
came across the camera right now and tripped on a cord and did a total like comical fall, we would maybe think it's funny, but it would be inappropriate to laugh. We would push down our reaction to it and we'd say, are you okay? And they got off camera and then we'd probably start laughing, right? Um, or something that is provocative in a challenging way and uh, it, it causes us to have a strong emotion in the other direction. So anything that's provocative that uh, elicits an emotion, we are always monitoring the environment we're in. And we are always figuring out what's appropriate for that environment, how to express ourselves. So you have um, uh, an inciting action that raises an emotion. So if you think of a triangle, the top of the triangle is emotion. The the bottom left would be um, expression, the way that you express that emotion. But bottom right is environment. And human beings are always looking at their environment, figuring out what is the proper way to express my emotion. And if it's a provocative emotion, we are making ultra quick judgments on that. And of course, everyone's different, different, they're raised different, grow have different life experiences. Uh, emotional labor is when we have to manage our emotional responses because we recognize the environment is a different one. We have to think about it. And the way that I describe it for leaders is sometimes something happens and you realize the environment you're in and you push your reaction all the way down. Other times you push the reaction halfway down so that you can transform it into a response. Yep. So if we think of kind of like old school business from like the 70s or something like that, where yelling in a workplace was like acceptable. Yeah. Or I don't know if it was ever acceptable, but it'd be something that would be more common. Yep. Where now in the modern work world, you would never yell at someone. Absolutely. But you could be angry and you could want to express that anger, but in an appropriate way push it down halfway, transform it into an appropriate response. So if we go to the logic of appropriateness, that preference to me is someone just being, uh, and I hear this a lot from leaders, when people, when we, but they'll use the word authenticity. If I'll say about how people use jokes or jokes or stories or aggressive language or how they can be um, not direct or too direct, uh, people often say, well, that's just me being authentic. And that's where I have to challenge that because it's like the get out of jail free pass, yes. you know, especially yes. in modern business where people value authenticity. I want you to bring your whole self to work, but I want you to bring that, that self to work that can work as well with as many people in as many different situations as quickly as possible. And that's not the same person as you that's on the couch in your sweatpants. Absolutely. So when I think about emotional labor, I think it ties in with that, that, um, uh, law or the logic of appropriateness is leaders have to govern themselves in a way that's constantly thinking about the environment, how I express myself, which means there rarely is a shortcut. I, I agree, right? And I think also self-discipline is, is really important uh, in a leadership role, right? So one should never shoot from the hip, right? So sometimes, I mean, you, you get it, I mean, something in a meeting or an email, right? And it, it really makes you angry. It frustrates you, right? And you should never uh, heed your first initial reactions to this, right? I've done this two or three times where I got an email or something that I realized and I was really angry, wrote an email, said something. This is where I always later on regretted this, right? So I think it's really important to be able to step down, reduce the emotion, and then really think about, okay, what's the appropriate response here, right? And very often the appropriate response is not what you came up in a split second, right? But this is what I see a lot, unfortunately, right? Still, to, uh, right? I mean, you mentioned yelling at people. I mean, that's a very uh, radical and unacceptable way of, of dealing with these situations. But I've seen also in, in communication or how people blow up in, in a meeting um, and so on, right? Never lose your cool by the end of the day. 
Yeah, because, well, on one spectrum, it's yelling. The other side, it could be people being passive aggressive, withdrawing from, <laughs> yeah. withdrawing from a conversation, <laughs> sitting in too much silence. But, so I'm going to ask you a follow-up question. I asked you before, what's something you learned about yourself that you really like since taking this role? But now the question I'm asking is, what's something that you've learned about yourself since taking on this leadership role that you didn't like and as a result you've had to work on? Oh, fantastic question, right? <laughs> uh, harsh communication. Okay. Right? I think, uh, for sure, right? This is probably still something that I'm uh, working on. I think, I mean, and we talked about academic subcultures and part of the academic subculture at least where I kind of like the right was very aggressive research seminars, right? Where I mean, you didn't take any prisoners, right? It was, it was all about the argument, making, and um, and that's something that I enjoyed, right? I always enjoyed this intellectual and rhetorical battle, right? Where also sometimes very harsh things uh, were said. I, I loved that, and. Um, and I also, I think, especially at the beginning, I also kind of brought this uh, to the job. I toned it down a little bit, but I think I can sometimes uh, still see how this uh, bubbles up, right? And I don't like this. It, it's like going back to the logic of appropriateness. It might be appropriate in a research seminar, but it's definitely not uh, appropriate in a team or business setting, not at all, right? It's, it's simply a very different uh, cattle of fish. That's uh, definitely something that I still have to work on, but I also uh, don't like about me. Right. And of course, I mean, there are always many things that you don't like about yourself. Right. I mean, and, but it's also about the realization, right, that you might be different. So I'm, for example, not the formal, most formal guy on earth. Right. <laughs> uh, and uh, that, I think, is, is a weakness uh, for sure. Right. I don't like, I mean, right, compliance rules. I mean, they are really important. I stick to them. Right. But it's not something that, right, that I spend a lot of time on. I'm, I'm, I think I'm more an agile decision maker by the end of the day, right? And that's, right, that's bring uh, its weakness. This is something where I realized, oh shit, right? Uh, you never realized that you're a person like this. No, probably not, right? I mean, uh, I think we all know that we are not perfect human beings. Uh, it's a great question. So in your evolution, not just the school's evolution, but in your growth in this role now, because you are into your sixth year, yourself yeah. here yeah um what's different about you in year six than year one? Oh, a lot <laughs> i think the uh, i i think i mean uh the entire demeanor i think i'm more presidential now in how i come across um i think i'm much more professional in my, my communication also some of these uh easy mistakes that you make uh, at the beginning i think i got rid of right that you want to be buddies with everyone i think at the beginning i think i I also sometimes blurred the boundaries between my personal and my professional life. Because, I mean, that's also part of being academic, right? I mean, you interact uh, with people uh, professionally, but you also interact with them as a friend, for example. And that is something that I have started to, I mean, uh, pulled, uh, move down a little bit, for example, right? Uh, so there are many, many learnings, um, uh, right, about myself, but also how I can improve. And I think that's also part of this journey. I mean, this is also... Going back to, I mean, uh, some of the hardcore stuff that we talked about, right? I mean, for me, hardcore was also always about becoming ever a better person, right? To reflect, to not get drawn into your emotions, to think about the person that you are. And uh, that does help. So earlier on, we talked about when you first became president, 
uh, you still were trying to do some teaching, but eventually had to give that up. So how do you, how do you replace that? You know, there's the inherent creativity of being part of research and, you know, putting forward these papers and there's that human connection and that helping growth happen. So there's all of this like creativity and kind of community investment yeah. at the professor level. How do you scratch that itch then in the job that you're in now? Uh, hope springs eternal, right? I mean, uh, uh, every year in January, I think, right, that the next year is going to be a lot calmer and that you can do a little bit of teaching, maybe write something uh, and so on. I vividly remember January tw uh, 2020, right, and I had just closed a massive uh, uh, deal. Right, that was also really important strategically for the school and that was important for the financial um, well-being. And sitting there in January and thought, okay, right, you're out of the rough now. 18 months oh of your presidency, right, very difficult, all these, and now it's smooth sailing for the next three years, right? <laughs> and lo and behold, right, two months later, we had the global pandemic. I mean, something that nobody expected, right? And there was another crisis. Right. But this is also, I mean, this is also, I mean, it was a little bit okay. Right. You've been there. You've been done this before. It's different. Right. This pandemic. But you have also managed successfully through a crisis. You're also going to survive that one. So there's that. On the other hand, right, what I really... I'm sorry, I'm just going to pause. The first uh, crisis was you, when you took your first year, there was the big financial hit. Yes, exactly. Right. New building, right. Uh, growth not as strong as we expected it to be. Right, so first time for at least a decade where the school made a financial loss, right? And, and that was in your first year. That was right in my first year, yeah. right? And how, how did you get through that? Like, uh, not the school, how did you get through that? As a person? Yeah. I think it was all about embracing the challenge and being prepared for it by the end of the day. I mentioned this before, right? This willingness uh, to make tough decisions. And I came into this job, right, with this idea that I will have to make tough decisions. And it was great to see, right, that first of all, I could not evade them, right, because, I mean, we had to do some cost cutting. We had to, I mean, make some cha uh, changes in the team that I was not afraid during the first six months to actually call the shots here. That was very important for me uh, to find out that I can actually do this. And second, I think what is also, what is also quite critical also is the pandemic right, um, being a strategist and having a strategy, right? A lot of the tough calls were informed about what the strategy for Frankfurt School is. And I think that actually helped me a lot uh, in my de decision-making, right? So, um, and to be honest, I mean, it, it, was, it was a really, really tough time back then, but it didn't feel like this. It felt like, okay, this is part of the job. And this also helped me then, right, when the pandemic came around, You've been there, you've done that, you will manage. And that gave me a lot of confidence. So I want to get back to the question. I'd asked how do you kind of scratch that itch of uh, being creative, being really growth-minded, being able to work with students that you had as a professor and switching into to the role. And uh, you, the first thing you said was hope springs eternal. And you know, I, I thought at the beginning of January 2020, I was going to be able to do that and we go off the pandemic. But before we get any, into the, anything about the pandemic, so how do you do it? How do you take care of that side of yourself? I think, I mean, I, I came to the realization, right, that part of being a CEO is actually pretty creative, mm -hmm. right? That you have to think about, not about all these operational problems, but what's the next step, right? How can we preserve this in the long term? And I think this is also 
something that was struggling with at the beginning, right? That I just constantly got drawn into all the operational details. Uh, and I didn't have a lot of time for strategy, right? And I think this is something, I mean, I always wanted to delegate. I always had this understanding, okay, as an effective leader, you have to delegate, you have to trust people. But I realized that this is actually not that easy because people don't very often don't want to make decisions because it dissipates ownership, dissipates uh, responsibility. I remember sitting here in this room, right, where uh, the question was whether people should wear caps and gowns at our graduation ceremony. I could care less, <laughs> right? I mean, somebody needs to make a decision and then make it look good one way or the other, yeah. right? And, um, and that is, I think, something that I became a lot more effective uh, with. So I think that is something that also, I mean, is, is, is a case now. I'm much, much better to focus on some of the more interesting strategic questions. Where should the school be uh, five years do uh, down the road? What, are, what is the next thing in terms of new services that we want to offer? How can we expand our campus? And that's exciting stuff, right? And also, I think, right, what is also I found interesting was, I mean, that right, the student interactions changes. Right? So I'm not in the classroom any longer, but I do have still a lot of interaction with students about different topics now, but that's also quite rewarding. So it's really about the shift um, in what makes me tick. Right? And once again, I think the cool thing is, right, if I want to go back um, to my former life, right, I can always do that. Right? The question will be right, that given also uh, how I have changed, whether I ever want to go back to that. I don't know. I can't, I, I can't tell you, right? And I also, I mean, this is, right, I remember I was in Milan and um, one of my friends there also said, okay, after five years, I mean, you're not publishing stuff any longer. Who's no, who will hire you later on? Right? And I said, I don't care because I mean, right? I, mean, I do have this confidence that something, other, something else will come at one point because that's very much also my experience, right? That opportunities present themselves. Mm -hmm. right? If you do a good job. Um, all right, let's go into the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, man, what a, uh, what a time you've had since you took over this role. You know, you have a financial crisis in the organization and you take care of that, make tough decisions, kind of get your, cut your teeth as a leader. Pandemic. The organization had, uh, um, was able to carry forward. Yeah. So what did you do? I mean, first of all, we always went into lockdown. We all went into a home office, right? Um, but I think, I mean, and that, those were really, really tough times because, I mean, uh, we saw that, I mean, uh, applications came to a standstill. Everything essentially came to a standstill. Um, and uh, that was really, really tough. On the other hand, I had no doubts that we as an institution are going to survive this. And also that by the end of the day, the crisis is going to make us stronger because this is also when you look into business history, right? Uh, crisis very often lead to more innovation, lead to more creative thinking, lead to more business models. So that was also the perspective from the get-go uh, that I had on the pandemic, right? And an early insight was that we have to go back to offering in-class teaching, right? And opening up the campus as soon as possible because that's at least what many students expect from us. Other students, right, had a different uh, view on this, right? They found it irresponsible uh, that we could offer in-class teaching again, open up the campus again. So I had this realization that the perspective on the pandemic, on this virus, 
is very, very different in our student population and in society at large. And we've seen this later on. So based on that, we started to flesh out some very general policies. So for example, that we said that, okay, we don't want uh, to force anybody on campus. And based on that, we de developed a hybrid model of teaching. So in the summer 2020, we said to students, okay, right, you can choose whether you want to come in, right, if it's allowed, right, or whether you want to follow the lecture online. And we, I mean, install a lot of cameras, we made massive investments into our technical backbone. Second, right, we also wanted to, I mean, build confidence by saying that, okay, if somebody gets infected, uh, we want to understand who you interact with. So we bought Bluetooth Corona traces that everyone wore around his neck or, or her neck, right? And we could then, you know, if somebody got sick or had a positive uh, Corona test, we could trace the interaction of these people and inform everyone and tell them, hey, look, you had interaction with um, somebody who was infected. Please take a Corona test. We're going to pay it for you. And only if it's negative, you're allowed to come back uh, to campus. If it's positive, right? We hope it's not too bad. Please stay home uh, until it becomes positive. And we were the only school uh, in the area that did that. And also, I think this is this kind of like signifies this for me, right? So our opening uh, of the semester in the fall 2020, we did this as in a drive-in cinema, right? So I was standing in front of 200 cars, right, giving my speech. Uh, uh, there, but that is, I think, demonstrated what our response was all about, right? Trying to do the best for our students, trying to uh, do the best for our community under some very challenging circumstances. And I think that is something that we succeeded and we grew a lot uh, during the pandemic. Did the pandemic impact the school in a negative way overall or a positive way overall? Overall, I think uh, we came out of the pandemic uh, stronger. It was very, very challenging, right? And I mean, it was also, I mean, uh, some, some very tragic situations, right? That people getting really, really sick. But overall, right, we came out of the pandemic much, much stronger, right? And we are grappling still with some of the fallout, right? I mean, we moved into this campus six years ago and we thought that, okay, right? And remember also, uh, just before the pandemic, we were thinking about renting out uh, places, right? Office space. Uh, to external companies because the, uh, the campus was still kind of empty. Now I have the problem, right, that we have to find additional capacity, right? And that demonstrates how also how our position has shifted during the last couple of years. Speaking of how the, the, uh, the school is growing, how can you make a campus truly like an international campus where it is welcoming and uh, a strong community for people from all sorts of backgrounds? All right, I'm not, not an architect, right? I mean, uh, they think about this very, very carefully. And some of, also some of the interior designers that helped us with this. But I think it's all about openness, right? If you look around the campus, there are lots of open spaces. And I think, and also, I mean, if you look at this from the street, I mean, you can see right into the campus. We have nothing to hide, basically. So it's, it's very, very open. And I think that is already an, an important symbol for who we are. We are open to the world. Right, that's the first thing. The second thing, when you go, uh, go across the campus, I mean, we have many of these breakout areas, right? Lots of glass, right? Where people can sit, spend time, right? Read, interact with friends, right? Hang out, and so on. And that is, I think, signifies for me the vibrancy that we want to have in the campus, right? And I think those are the two values that we are trying to, to celebrate uh, with the campus, the openness and the vibrancy. 
what about from a, um, a organizational culture point of view? Like, how do you how do you really inspire that kind of community sense with with uh, really embracing a diversity of student body and also faculty? Yeah, I mean, this is once again. I mean, it's it's about leading by example, right? I think that is that is very uh, open. I think it's uh, important that you, as a person, are somebody who has an open mind, who embraces diversity. Uh, who's tolerant of, 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 of the differences. So it's a very personal thing. Second, I mean, in, as an institution, we have to make sure, right, that uh, people find our school accommodating, that we are also willing, right, uh, to constantly adapt, so that we also forcefully embrace this idea, right, that we are not a German institution, but that we are an international institution. So for example, one of the things that I did was that our town hall meetings, the meetings for the employees, are in English, not in German. I got a lot of uh, pushback, for example, from the Works Council on this. But that was really important for me because it shows that we are an open place and we want to integrate right, people from all walks of life and from all around the growth. And we can only do this if our business language is English. So there are all these little things that we have to do. right? Uh, in order um, uh, to, to, to celebrate this uh, diversity and to celebrate this, uh, this open place. It's a constant struggle, I think. It's an interesting thing from a North American perspective. Uh, now, I can't speak to the academics, but I'll speak to corporate culture. Um, marketing, versus, marketing versus change. And I think any professional can see that there's been a, a big uptick in how much companies talk about diversity and inclusion. Uh, in terms of how they talk about it on platforms yes. to an outward yes. audience versus the work that they do internally yes. to make to make places truly accessible and welcoming to do that like as you said it's a constant constant work to do rather than just like uh, hey we've gotten here and now this is what we're gonna, we're going to do and we also see is we're you know we're seeing lots of uh, commentary on uh, diversity equity inclusion programming inside of organizations funding is being reduced or shifted. Uh, it's an interesting time because, and I'm not smiling because I think it's good. I'm I'm smiling more like this is the most predictable thing after everyone kind of does all their marketing boosts about it in the background, things start going away. Um, but something that I know is a shared value for both uh, you and I, and, and I, I believe this is true for this organization that, that you lead, uh, you got to be consistent, thoughtful, forceful in this, and this is a thing. It's not easy, though, as a leader to do that. No, I mean, because, I mean, right, it is a constant struggle, right? And, um, and it's also, I mean, there's always a risk of, of falling back, right? Um, but I think, I mean, um, right, I, I think it's a hard question, I mean, whether we succeed, but if I look at our student body and also, I mean, also how international our staff and faculty is, right, especially in the context that we find ourselves in, right? We are in Germany, we're not in the United States, I mean, we are, as a country less diverse in the United States. But I think we are, I mean, really succeeding uh, on this, right? But it's something that we constantly have to update, that we also have to uh, listen to our students to whether we do a good job and where we could uh, become better, right? But by the end of the day, I think it's not about, I mean, having a diversity, um, equity, and inclusion policy in place. It's all about, I mean, how we actually interact um, every day and whether we are truly embracing this idea, right, that true greatness comes from the diversity of experiences. That's for me really critical. 
Totally. And you said that to me when we were doing the uh, doing the tour today, is that diversity of, of experience, of the, the interactions, yeah. like working across cultures, having all these uh, experiences with people who have all these different backgrounds. Something that I, I, I've heard businesses say so many times and I always roll my eyes at is, you know, we hire the best and the brightest. Well, yes, you're not going to hire like the worst. <laughs> you're not going to hire worst, uh, the worst people. But to be able to hire the best and brightest, if you're only hire, if you're only prevent creating a situation where a very small population of the world can be successful, then you're not hiring the best and brightest. You're just hiring the best and brightest from a very small part of the population. Whereas if we think of like doing good business, like real business decisions, big and long lasting thoughtful investments in creating accessibility to all sorts of different kinds of people, that actually opens up the pool of hiring the best and brightest. Uh, that's why I think it's so short-sighted when um, a lot of the funding for these these programs seems to be slipping away, at least in North America. I can't speak to, to Europe. Mm -hmm. I think it's never been on the same level as in the United States. I mean, because the, the cultural context is very, very different, mm -hmm. right? But for Frankfurt School and also for Germany more generally, it's it's really, really critical um, uh, to, to embrace, I mean, um, diversity, right? I mean, we as a country, I mean, we have to continue to innovate to be successful. Right, and we are, will also have to rely um, on on people from abroad in order to make sure, right, that the economy keeps on ticking. And I think that is, I mean, where diversity comes in. We have to be a welcoming country, right, and uh, and we also have to be a welcoming institution. And uh, that takes a lot of work. I mean, um, and sometimes I feel right that at, at least on the country level. We could do a much much better job on this, right? If I look, for example, in our public administration, when it comes to immigrants, for example, migrants, right? I think uh, we are sometimes really dropping the ball there, and that's not good. I think we need this welcoming culture, and I think this is. I mean, uh, I'm also, I mean, very focused on what we, we can do as Frankfurt School, right? Because I mean, sometimes when you look at, I mean, these entire political developments, a political discussion, right? It can be a little bit disheartening sometimes. Right. I'm a very optimistic person overall. Right. But then I still go back and focus. Okay, what are the opportunities that we have in order um, to improve? And there are lots. Right. It's very easy to become cynical uh, when 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 you're only steeped in the political because it could just feel like everything is just so complex and you have no real power day to day. Uh, I always encourage people to get back into that ideal of just like the most optimistic enthusiasm about of, of the idea that really small groups of people can make almost anything happen yep. uh, outside of major power systems. Yeah, I, I fully agree. I think there's a lot to be said for sunny optimism. Yeah. Right. I mean, you can actually, I mean, also, I mean, there are actually some, some proofs on this, right? How sunny optimism actually makes you, I mean, uh, more successful, more creative, right? More adaptable. I even, even I have a paper. Right, that shows that if, if you have optimistic hyperbole, that really helps us uh, helps companies to become less complacent in the face of uh, disruptive change. Right, so so that's and I think this is also something uh, that is important uh, for a leader. Right, um, you don't always have to have the answers. Right, but you have to, I mean, signal right that there is an answer. Right, and and you always have to have this this confidence that no matter what's going to happen, there will be an answer, right? And it doesn't have to be you that comes up with the answer, right? That's, I think, also quite important. And I think that's 
especially important in these challenging times. Yeah, 100%. All right, uh, as we're heading towards the end of the interview, we are going to ask you the crucial three. Oh, the crucial three, I always <laughs> suck at that. <laughs> All right, so before we get to the crucial three, I actually have a pre-question. This one comes from the, from the audience here. Star Trek or Star Wars and why? Very clear, Star Wars, all oh. the way. <laughs> oh. uh, why? I mean, very easy answer, right? Because Star Trek is boring. I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> oh. I even have, I mean, a, a, a Star Wars motto in my office. I know, I know. <laughs> Star Trek right. for life. I like both, but Star Trek for life. So you're a Star Trek? Um, listen, I, I love Star Wars, but Star Trek is like, pfft. <laughs> it's the best. All right, okay. Did you ever watch Deep Space Nine? No, I did not. I mean, I, I, I couldn't stand this, right? I, it's I, like, <laughs> I was bored to death after 30 minutes. No, listen, if you watch Discovery. I should try it out. I should no, try it out. You got to watch Deep Space Nine. It's so, it's so good because it takes away the idea that Starfleet is this like, perfect entity and it shows like the dark side of it and like the grittiness of it it's so good it's like the rogue one in the star wars universe would be if you think if okay, you think of that's rogue high one. praise yeah uh, so that's deep, high praise deep space nine is seven seasons of rogue one okay that sounds great so i'm going to check it out thanks for see we've just we've just created <laughs> some change right here you said you're all about change. that's it it's all about being open-minded all right let's hit the crucial three okay excellent so for the audience, these are three questions get increasingly more difficult. Okay, all right, okay. Okay, we are going to start easy. Um, we've only touched on it on it lightly here. Uh, I think, you know, because we were just, a, it's a fun conversation. But you do have an extensive history in punk and hardcore, came up in that scene. Um, of anything that you could say influences your leadership from punk and hardcore, what would it be? I think it's really, for me, this idea of, of uh, self-reflection and uh, this idea that you have to change yourself before you can change uh, the world, right? I think that is something that really resonated uh, with me uh, back then. And I think that is something that I also bring uh, to, the, to the leadership style. Also the humility. I think that's also very, very important, right? I mean, um, I mean, there's a song by, by, by Ray Capo, uh, he did the seven inch with Revelation Records, right? And uh, it says, right, I can't remember the exact words, but it always resonated with me, right? That people don't love you because the person that you are, but simply in the position that you're in, right? And I think that's also very important, right? I mean, this is also something, suddenly when I became president, I, I was somebody, suddenly I was somebody. Right? I got invited to all these cool events, right? people started to look up to me, and so on. And I think it's very important to understand that's about your role in Eels. It's not about you as a person. Right? And that is something that really, I mean, uh, uh, I, I probably not necessarily, I maybe learned from hardcore, right? But I think hardcore, I mean, for me, was very, very influ influential when it came to the values that I uh, uh, hold, hold dear. What's one thing that someone would not know about the role of president? Like something, like something that from the outside you just couldn't know about until you were in the position. I think, I mean, what people underestimate is the important of, uh, importance of networks, right? I mean, this is something that I do see again and again and again, how important it is, I mean, to just 
hangout, right? That might be the wrong term, right? When we are talking about politicians or CEOs and so on. But spending time with these people, spending time on building the network is quite critical because in many situations that also were tough, right? It was important that I could go back to my network, talk to some people, right? Get their insight, maybe also get their influence. So this is, I think, something that uh, many people from the outside might heavily underestimate. I think it's also, I mean, in German, I mean, this is also what I uh, underestimated. In German, we have this uh, term, Grüß Gott Onkel. And it essentially says, I mean, how many you know, short welcoming speeches you have to give. <laughs> right? This is something that I totally underestimated, right? I thought when I came in there, I'm going to give these, these big, interesting speeches. But hey, look, we are there for three minutes to welcome folks tell them very briefly about what Frankfurt School is, and then go off stage again, right? And that's something that you have to get used to, right? Yeah. So the final one is a, is a tough one. I was thinking about it when you were giving us the tour. Uh, you'd said something that really stuck with me and I think will stick with me forever. Uh, part of, um, part of a, the a part of a school is creating traditions. Mm -hmm. And you were showing us with such great pride all of these different places where students who have been recognized for the contributions to the school, their names are actually there and they're gonna be there in perpetuity. So creating tradition, creating legacy, creating a, a sense of space and a sense of history. If we bring this back to you, what do you want or hope your legacy as a leader is gonna be for this organization so that when people are looking back, they can say, this is what this person brought to this organization? that we took a major step towards becoming a top five European business school, right? That's our big strategic goal, right? And I hope that at one point I remember, I'm being remembered uh, for being a person that took a major step into this direction, right? That I swear, that's what it's all about, basically. All right, so as we're closing off, is there anything you wanna add in, anything you wanna say? No, thank you so much. I think this was uh, really great. It was a fun conversation. I always enjoy this because, I mean, uh, right, it also helps uh, to, to, to reflect a little bit, right? I mean, uh, it's also good to do this off the cuff, right? And uh, without thinking about, okay, how is this going to, I mean, uh, come across, but really, I mean, doing this straight from the heart because that also helps me to think about this, right? Because that's also quite important, right? When you are talking, you're also thinking, you're reflecting, and you're also learning something. So every conversation is important. So thanks for this. Heck yeah. All right, everyone. I hope you got as much out of this one as I did. Uh, you didn't get the, the chance that Monica and I had today where we got to have this beautiful tour of this uh, amazing, amazing school uh, in the heart of a wonderful city. We're so grateful to be here, and we had such a great time, and I had such an awesome conversation with you. So everyone, until next time, my name is Aram Arslanian, and we'll see you on One Step Beyond. One step. One.